Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are beginning a three-week sermon series in 1 Corinthians 15 because it is probably the most sustained, it certainly is the most sustained treatment of the doctrine of resurrection in all of Scripture. It is a long and wonderful chapter, and we plan to spend the next three weeks uh, walking through it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What a final week the Lord Jesus had on earth. So, if we're thinking of this week as Holy Week or Passion Week, let's act like the events are happening in real time. I like to think of it that way. It makes, at least helps me feel like it's more real, like it's happening, like as if you were there. So, let's rewind back to last weekend. On either Friday or Saturday of last weekend, Jesus was just, just off to the east of the city of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives in a town called Bethany, and He was in the home of some people you probably know, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus had just recently raised from the dead. You can see John 11 for that. And Jesus is there, and Mary, the, the, the sister, is so overwhelmed with love for Christ that she comes and opens that alabaster uh, bas- the, the piece of the, the ointment, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She begins uh, wiping her, His feet with her hair. In that very moment, Judas sees how much money has just been poured out on Jesus as this offering of love, and he's full of greed, and he determines in that moment that he is going to betray Jesus for money. Last Sunday… Jesus came over that Mount of Olives on a donkey no one had ever ridden on with a crowd behind Him from Bethany, thrilled over the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, and a crowd comes out of Jerusalem. They meet Jesus halfway, and they begin singing the Hosannas with their palm branches in their hands. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and He observes the temple, but He doesn't do anything that evening. He returns back over the hill and goes to sleep in Bethany with His disciples. On Monday morning of this past week, Jesus gets up. He goes back into Jerusalem. This time, He has an agenda. Very clear agenda. As he walks, he curses a fig tree, saying, you should be producing fruit, but you are not. I curse you, which is actually a symbol for the nation of Israel as a whole. He gets over to the temple, and he begins to turn over the tables of the money changers. And he says, you have turned the Lord's house from a house of prayer into a house of thieves. Jesus then… returns home the next morning. As they return back to Jerusalem on Tuesday, they see the withered fig tree, and all the religious leaders have been riled up by what Jesus did yesterday. You cannot do what Jesus did in our temple. And so, when He gets back on Tuesday, He goes toe-to-toe with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees as they grill Him with questions trying to catch Him in His words. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And on it goes. At the end of that long day, Jesus issues the strongest words of stinging rebuke for the religious leaders in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. At the end of that day before he leaves the temple, he looks over and sees a widow giving her last penny into the treasury. He speaks of her, and then he leaves. He goes back onto the Mount of Olives. His disciples come and sit down with him, and they ask him about the destruction of the temple and the return of Christ. And Jesus unpacks that in Matthew 24 in great detail. Thursday evening, the Last Supper. After washing the disciples' feet, Judas exits the meal early because he is going to notify the authorities so that he can betray Jesus later that evening. It's now known as the the night when Jesus was betrayed. Later that evening, as we just heard a little bit about, Jesus exits the room with His, the upper room with His disciples, and they make the walk across the Kidron Valley outside the city gates of Jerusalem. They go up on that same Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is where Jesus is in agony. He begins to sweat profusely in the cold of that night because of the agony of the cup of God's judgment against our sin that is laid out before Him that He must now drink. 
After praying, he comes and finds his disciples sleeping. He wakes them up. Judas comes that night with perhaps more than 200 or 300 Roman soldiers with, sword, with clubs and spears and torches. It was a full moon that night because of when Passover is timed in the lunar calendar, so we know that there was light out from the full moon. They come to arrest Jesus. He's betrayed with a kiss. The disciples turn and flee. Jesus is taken from one place to another that sleepless night. This past Friday morning, as Holy Week goes, Jesus is taken to Annas, the former high priest, early in the morning, then Caiaphas, the present high priest. Then he's taken before the Sanhedrin, a charge of things that are not true of him. Then he's taken to Pilate. Then he's taken to Herod. Then he's taken back to Pilate. And finally, Jesus is scourged with the Roman whip. He, around 9 a.m., is given the, something called the patibulum, the cross beam of the cross, which could have weighed over 100 pounds on his back. He begins to carry this several hundred yards out from where the praetorium, the governor's headquarters was, out to Golgotha, the place of the skull. When he gets there, as we just sung about, he is nailed to a cross, and he is hung there, and he dies under God's just wrath against sin and sinners. For all those who would ever turn and trust in Christ, He paid the full measure of justice. He drank the cup dry. On Friday evening, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin leaders who was not in league with the rest, he and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus, cover it in some spices, and lay it in Joseph's never-used tomb that had been cut out of rock. Friday evening, everyone goes to bed because the Sabbath has begun. No one works. No one really moves much on Saturday what has been called Holy Saturday in church tradition. And then early Sunday morning, the women go to the tomb to finish preparing the body of Jesus and its rushed burial. When they get there, they don't know how they're going to be able to move the stone away, but they are there, Mary Magdalene and other women. When they get there, there had just been an earthquake. An angel had rolled back the stone and sat upon it. Matthew tells us the Roman soldiers were terrified. They ran into the city to tell the leaders what had happened. When the women get there, they find a tomb that is empty. A little later that morning, John tells us Mary Magdalene will be standing outside that tomb and she is weeping. Spurgeon said she would not leave what she thought was a dead Savior. How many of us want to leave a living Savior? Mary Magdalene lingers by the tomb weeping, apparently alone, when an angel appears and speaks to her, and she hears a voice behind her, and she mistakes this voice for the gardener, and she turns and says, if you've taken his body away, tell me where it is, and I will take it away. And then that supposed gardener speaks and says her name in the tone that Mary knew, the unmistakable tone of voice that only one person had, and that was the Lord Jesus. He said, Mary, and she said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And in that moment, she clung to Jesus' feet and she was overwhelmed by the reality of what was happening. I'm sure the pieces were not coming together quick enough to understand what was happening in front of them. But it was the most significant, momentous, life-changing event that has ever happened in the history of the world. And Jesus appeared to many for 40 days. And then he ascended into heaven where he will come again. The historical Jesus is alive right now. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And He is going to come again to this world. This is not mythology. This is not fiction. This is not hallucination or delusion. This is history, divine history. And the Lord Jesus offers real salvation, real forgiveness, and real satisfaction that you cannot get anywhere except in His embrace, and He offers it for free 
because it cost him everything on the cross. Now, you fast forward from those events into the mid-50s. So, that took place in the early 30s A.D. Now, we fast forward a little over 20 years to the mid-50s, and Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And this is in many ways a familiar passage, but I think a wonderful one. Let me give you the outline for the message, and we will walk through 1 Corinthians 15, the first 20 verses. The title of the sermon is, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. Point number one is going to be an explanation of the gospel covering the first four verses. Then verses 5 to 11 is a positive defense of the resurrection. Verses 12 to 20 is a negative defense of the resurrection. I'll explain that in a moment. And then point number four is just going to be our response to what we see here in this passage. So point number one, the first four verses, an explanation of the gospel. Follow along with me, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let me pause here. I'll mention more about this at the end, but just briefly. When we hear the good news, we are called to respond as Paul describes in verses 1 and 2. How do we respond to the gospel? Number one, we must receive this good news. This good news does no good for me if I will not willingly, joyfully receive it and embrace it and delight in it. He says, you have received this gospel. And then he says, you are standing in verse 1. You're standing in this gospel. See, let's be honest. Some of us had an experience maybe decades ago. We were at maybe a church event or a youth event or some sort of big rally of some kind where the gospel was presented and we got really moved or even emotionally we felt something and we were excited by what we heard and we may have come forward, we may have prayed a prayer, we may have been baptized, we may have joined a church. All kinds of experiences may have have happened earlier in our lives. That may be all well and good, but Paul says not just have you received this message, but what? Are you standing in it right now? Are you living your life based on this message? Is this message affecting you day in and day out? Is this where you've made your home? Do you still stand in the gospel? And then he says, if so, verse 2, it is the message by which you are being saved if. Now, pause. We may not be used to an if at this moment. You're being saved if, yes, if, look at this if, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I will just say that there's, there's numerous people that, that I do and do not know in, in this room. I will say it is certainly a possibility that for some in this room, and maybe some listening later, it is, very, it is possible that as a child, we may have received something, we may have believed something, but yet was our heart truly and permanently changed by the Lord Jesus? 
Did a new love for the Lord Jesus really begin to blossom in our heart? And is there a lasting evidence that we love Jesus and we are standing in the truth of the gospel, or are we not holding fast to that message? What if over the years and months of life, life is busy? There's a lot of things to worry and think about. Yes, I go to church when I'm able. I read my Bible here and there. But really, Jesus, if I was being honest with myself, could I say, He's become not, no longer central. He's gone to the periphery of my life. I still think well of Jesus. I don't say bad things about Him. I think it's great that, that people are devout followers of Him, but I, I believe in Him to some degree, but I, I'm not. My life is not really holding fast to the gospel. Paul says there's a warning. Let us beware lest we have a vain, empty, false faith in Christ that is no more than superficial. Cultural Christianity is an epidemic in this world. A lot. Of, I grew up Christian, or I grew up in the church, and so I'm a Christian. My parents are missionaries, and on it may go. That, that may be wonderful, but do I personally have a living, genuine, saving relationship with Jesus that affects my life from beginning to end? And when I fail, which we all fail, this is not Christian perfectionism, when we, when we fail, do we return racing back to the cross for fresh acceptance and repentance and forgiveness of God? Is Christ central, or is He ultimately on the back burner? Take it or leave it when, you, when, when it when you really think about it. Are we holding fast or have we believed in vain? But what is the content of this message again? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, verse 5, and that He appeared. Now, follow me real quick on this. Paul basically mentions four things here, and it seems as though this makes sense. The first one is that Jesus died. The second one, the burial, is simply backing up the fact that he was truly dead. Just follow this, okay? He, he died. How do you know? Well, one of the obvious evidences, he was, so, he was so clearly dead that they laid him in a tomb. So the burial confirms that he was truly dead. Does that make sense? Number two, the next major thing he mentions, it's really number three here, the next thing he mentions is Jesus rose from the dead. And then the fourth thing he mentions is he appeared. The appearing confirms that he rose, just like the burial confirms that he died. Does that make sense? So he died, proof he was buried. He rose, proof he was seen by many people. That's the logical argument here. But Paul says he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I teach high school Bible. I love to do whole class periods on this kind of thing. I'm going to have to shorten this so we can have an Easter evening. After this is over, I just want to tell you, this is, this is a really amazing fact of archaeology and history for those who are interested in such things. In the year 1947, not far from Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The most non-negotiably, the most singly important thing found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a 27-foot long, completely intact copy of the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? The big deal about that is this copy of Isaiah, and this is, this is not something that just Christians say. This is Everybody agrees on this. This is not a debatable issue. That copy of Isaiah, which is priceless, it's in the, uh, the museum in Israel, it predates the birth of Jesus by over 100 years. Now you say, what's the big deal about that? What I'm about to read you is a direct-to-English translation from the original Hebrew manuscript, copied down by the Dead Sea Scroll authors, the Qumran community, that predates Jesus by about 120 years, 
So this document was not influenced by Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is before Christ. Here is what we read, because Paul says he died according to the Scriptures for our sins. According to what Scriptures? Well, here, this is pre-Jesus Scripture. Uh, This was written down before Christ was born. Let me just read you. You'll hear some stuff that Scott mentioned just a moment ago. Isaiah 52 and 53 from this original, from this, not original, from this ancient manuscript of Isaiah. He was marred in his appearance more than any human, and his form beyond that of the sons of humans. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we did not value him. Surely he has borne our sufferings and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that made us whole was upon him. And by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now listen carefully. Do you you hear dying for our sins? Now listen to this. For he was cut off from the land of the living. You know what that means? That is death. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Then they made his grave with the wicked and with rich people his tomb. This is from a copy of Isaiah written 120 years before Jesus was born. You have the fact that a man is going to die in the place of the sins of God's people. He's going to be buried in the borrowed tomb of rich people. That was written down ahead of time. Did Jesus fulfill this passage of Scripture? Yes, and listen to the resurrection in Isaiah. Out of the suffering of his soul, he will see light and find satisfaction. And through his knowledge, the servant, the righteous one, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Clearly, you have here the death and resurrection of the Messiah long before he was ever born. If you want more on that, look up Psalm 22 later and just read through it and see how astonishingly similar that is to the description of Jesus' death on the cross. We're also told in verse 4 that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You say, does the Old Testament say He was going to be raised on the third day? That's pretty specific. Yes, it does. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, listen to this. Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament book of Jonah, verse, chapter 17 of verse 1. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Even the three days dead aspect of Jesus' death was predicted typologically, up through a pattern in the Old Testament. And there are other passages as well on that theme. Now, look with me here. We're going to move to our second point of the message. This is a positive defense of the resurrection. This is verses 5 through 11. A positive defense of the resurrection, verses 5 through 11. Let me just read through these here. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul here is giving a defense for the resurrection. Let me just mention here in verse 12, we're told, second half of the verse, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's responding to a rumor that was started. Some of the Corinthians were starting to get skeptical of the idea that there would be a bodily resurrection at the final return of Christ. They were, they were skeptical of that. Most people in their culture did not believe in bodily resurrection. And so some of the Corinthians were doubting that, and Paul is addressing that doubt in this chapter. So he's giving evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Three reasons he gives positively for the resurrection. Number one, it fulfills the Scriptures. I just mentioned that with Jonah and other examples. Isaiah 53, he will come back for the dead is the reference there. Psalm 16, there are others. It fulfilled the Scriptures. Number two, the resurrection was verified by literally hundreds of eyewitnesses. Hundreds of eyewitnesses verify the resurrection. And number three, the risen Jesus has real transforming power in people's lives, namely Paul, going from a killer of Christians, literally, to the most devout Christian you could ever find within a short period of time. It has a transforming power through Paul himself. Now, how, how, does, how is this structured? Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The words he appeared appear in each verse four times. 5, 6, 7, 8. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared. And what you have is this. So follow me for a second with the structural stuff. He mentions Peter, Cephas first. Then he mentions the twelve. Now, we know that Judas is gone. I understand that. But the twelve was a technical title for the apostles, okay? So we know not all the twelve were alive at this moment. But still, you've got, uh, and he was replaced later. You've got Peter and you've got the twelve. And then you've got toward the end, you've got James and you've got the apostles. Okay, so Peter and James were the two major leaders of the Jerusalem church at the beginning. They're the two enormously important people. So you got Peter picked out, then the 12. Then you have James, leader of the Jerusalem church, and the apostles with him. In between those two groups, you have this group of 500 Christians who saw Jesus at one time, most of them still living when Paul wrote this. And then lastly, you have Paul himself, and he calls himself the last eyewitness. Now, in the Old Testament, to establish something, we talked about this last Sunday, to establish a fact in a group setting, you needed the testimony not of one person, how many do you need? You need two or three. In, in an Old Testament court setting, you need two or three witnesses. Three is fantastic. In the Old Testament, if you have three independent eyewitnesses of an event, whether it's a, a, a robbery or a murder or whatever it may be, if you have three eyewitnesses, that is wonderful in Old Testament context. Do we have three eyewitnesses of the resurrection? We've got a little bit more than three eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Let me just mention here the more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep, that is, have died. Verse 6. Let me just say something about this. Some of the Corinthians were doubting the bodily resurrection. Here's Paul's response. All the leaders of the early church agree that Jesus rose. In fact, most of the early church leaders saw it for themselves. Paul says, I am one of those people who saw it for myself. You could ask Peter. You could ask James. You could ask on and on, all the 12. But then he says, if you're really skeptical, 
There was one time when Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers, 500 Christians at one time. And then he says this incredibly significant phrase, most of whom are still alive. Now, this is a very powerful point. When Paul is writing this letter in the 50s AD, the majority of the 500 witnesses were alive. You say, well, they're not alive now. What difference does it make for us? Well, it does matter because when the Corinthians got this letter, were there some skeptics about resurrection around the church? Yes. What, could, what is Paul inviting them to do? Go find them and ask. Go, go, check, go check the facts out. Don't just take my word for it. Go ask the apostles. Go ask maybe the women who were there at the empty tomb. Go find one of them. Go find any of these 500 people. Most of them are still living. So there are more than 300 living eyewitnesses at least alive when Paul pins these words. These words would have zero zero power or defensibility if Paul's claim is not true when he wrote this. Because if they go around asking the people that Paul said to ask, and they say Paul's lying, guess what happens? They burn the letter of 1 Corinthians, and no one cares what Paul has to say anymore, right? Because he's a false prophet. He's a liar. We interviewed all the people he told us to interview, and they said, no, he's making this up. But what no doubt happened, if I was, listen, I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. Some of you in the room are, are with me on this. You, you don't just believe things hook, line, and sinker. You want to stop and think through the facts and study and research. I'm with you. That's my group, if that's, if that's where you are. I would have been the first person to say, let me go travel and find these people. I am all about trying to find them. And what we would have found was they would have affirmed with Paul, yes, I was there. Maybe on the hill in Galilee, I was there. I was there on Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended to heaven. I saw it with my own eyes. We were there that day. And so clearly there is a whole lot of eyewitness testimony behind the resurrection of Jesus. Let me also mention here the transforming power of the resurrection. In verses 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, the grace of God toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I have to mention this just because it, it happened yesterday. Some of you have already mentioned this too. But uh, So, a little over 10 years ago, there was a, 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 a psychology professor at UGA uh, named Dr. Rich Saplita. Now, Rich Saplita was the faculty advisor for the UG Atheist Society. You've got to give him credit for that name. That's clever. UG Atheists. It's pretty good. So he was the faculty advisor for the UG Atheist, the Secular Student Society on campus. A uh, number of people I know evangelized Rich and reached out to him. He was always open to dialogue. He would sometimes walk out on, the, on Tate Plaza next to Sanford Stadium. He would hold a little sign that said, Ask an Atheist. And he, he was a sharp guy, PhD, brilliant guy, and you could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. And it was intimidating. I mean, it was a, you you want to know what you're talking about when you're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Dr. Rich Saplita. Well, 10 years ago this past week, uh, exactly 10 years ago, I went to a Christian conference with Rich Saplita. Me and Papa Fred and another guy, we got into a car and we drove to a Christian conference in Kentucky and we spent the day together. I, I roomed with Rich Saplita. We shared the same hotel room for a couple days. Here's where he was at. He said, I don't think I can believe in the doctrine of hell. And he said, I've really got problems with the Bible, what the Bible says about these issues. But he was already on the fence about what he believes about Jesus. He was starting to kind of lean towards Christianity, but he was still having some questions. Fast forward a couple more years dramatic transformation happens. And the, way, the reason I'm reminded of this, yesterday, my family, we, we were going into Athens to take a walk. We were stupid. We didn't know that there was a game going on. Just tells you all about me. I didn't even know it was happening. I'm like, oh, why? Well, okay. 
guess something's happening. So, uh, get, we, we, we're, we're walking downtown Athens, and we're like, let's go, to the, let's go to Sanford Stadium. That'll be fun just to show the kids. We got all three kids with us, so it was crazy. And uh, Kelly's wearing one of them, and we're just pushing them around. So, we, 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 we get to Sanford Stadium, and right when we get to Sanford Stadium, I, I hear... And this may make some of you cringe. I understand a lot of Christians have done this poorly. But I'm hearing a gospel being proclaimed through the speakers outside on the, on the bridge behind the scoreboard, you know. And uh, I'm like, uh-oh, is this going to be good or bad? Is this going to be like, you know, what's, what's the approach here? But then I, I, I look, and the, the guy standing on a little block with the microphone on, preaching the, the real gospel, is Dr. Rich Sepleta. And I, I walk over to him. And I'm, you know, this is not the first time he's done that, by the way. He's a full-time apologist now. He's a full-time evangelist. That's what he does for a living now. Quite a change has happened in his life. And I walked over to him, and he stepped off the, the little stool that he was standing on, the little stepping thing, and he stepped over to me, and I said, Rich, I am so encouraged to hear the real gospel being humbly and clearly proclaimed right now. It makes me want to be more bold. I feel convicted over seeing this, and I was just praising the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is true whether or not it changed my life. But my goodness, transformed lives are not a hurting testimony to go alongside the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. How do you explain Rich's life transformation? How do you explain the transformation of so many in this room? Where, what were we 10 years ago? What were some of us 30, 40 years ago? What was our life like? Where were we headed? My, has the Lord done a work to change the deepest habits and longings and loves of our hearts so that now, not perfectly, but they are beginning to be centered on the person of Christ and everything is different now. When you go outside, the, the, the world is just more of a wonderful place because you know the God who made this and you are actually beginning to live in a way that is honoring to Him. Let me move to the third point. This is verses 12 to 20. And this is a negative defense of the resurrection. So Paul's going to do the opposite. He's going to say, what if the resurrection is not true? What follows from that? Let me ask you, if you like logic, have you ever heard of a reductio ad absurdum? Where you basically, what you do is you take someone's premise, what they say they believe, and you work it backwards and you apply it to everything they don't want to apply it to until you realize that their position is absurd. It doesn't actually work in reality. Does that make sense? So you take a premise, someone says, I believe, you know, I'm not to... Just, just to give one example, like if someone says, I would try to do this humbly and graciously, if someone says, I, I don't believe in God, I'm, I'm an atheist, I would say, okay, let's work that out. Therefore, we don't have any objective purpose, we don't have any objective right and wrong, we don't have any, there's no, you can't use the word evil truly because there's no objective standard for right and wrong. When we die, we'll be forgotten and no one will ever care. One day the universe will go extinct and there will be nothing left but forgottenness and no one to see it. Do you really want to live under that? Or let's think of an alternative. That, that's, that you, you, take, you, you apply the premise to all scenarios. Paul does it brilliantly right here. Oh my goodness, this is brilliant. Look at verses 12 to 20. And he gives seven things, seven that follow from rejecting the resurrection. Seven things that follow from rejecting the resurrection. I'll work through them one at a time. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, number one, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, so if, if you don't believe there's going to be a resurrection at the end, then Jesus could not… If you believe there's no such thing as physical bodily resurrection, then guess what? Number one, most importantly, then Jesus could not have come back to life bodily. If there's no resurrection, we lose the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, number two, then our preaching is vain, number three, and your faith is vain. So Paul says, listen, my whole ministry is pointless, and if you're a Christian, 
every moment you've ever spent investing in Bible study and evangelism and reaching out to others, it's all pointless if there is no resurrection from the dead. Number four, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So number four is, Paul says, we are guilty of unbelievably serious blasphemy, of of saying that God raised Jesus when God, in fact, did not raise Jesus if the dead are not raised. Number five, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, number five, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now, let's linger on this for a moment. I remember talking to a Muslim college student in Birmingham, Alabama, I believe we were. It was a misty, rainy-ish day. We were outside on this green grass. I think I've mentioned this story before. Nice guy, young Muslim guy. We were doing some evangelism. A friend of mine, we were talking to this guy. And, and after hearing him out, I wanted to hear what he believed, why he believed it, asked him all kinds of questions about his Muslim faith. At a certain point, I asked him very directly, not harsh, but very direct. I said, in Christianity... God can be both just and forgive sinners. And the reason is because Jesus pays the penalty for the sin. So God is still just because the penalty is paid in full. It is finished. It's paid for. But at the same time, God can still forgive a sinner because we're not paying for it. His son graciously paid for it in our place. I said, in Islam, I know that in the Quran, it says that Allah is the merciful, the loving, and that he's even forgiving. And he said, yeah, Allah has to forgive us. We sin. And I said, how can Allah be just and at the same time forgive you of sins? Who pays? And again, I was, it wasn't like I'm trying to, trying to beat the guy up. I was trying to get him to think. And he said, I don't have an answer to that. I'm not sure what I would say to that. I said, well, okay, if Christ has not been raised, listen, All of us, if Christ has not been raised, what hope do you have to defeat death? Buddha died. He's still dead. Muhammad died. He's still dead. Joseph Smith died. He's still dead. When you look at all the founders of the major world religions, Confucius died. He's dead. All the pharaohs of Egypt have died. They are still dead. All the great Caesars in the Roman Empire died. They are dead. Jesus died and rose. He defeated death. He's the one offering for forgiveness. And if we reject that, if Christ has not been raised, we are lost in our sin and we are in, in, in eternal trouble. Number six, the next thing that follows from rejecting the resurrection, look at verse 18. Number six, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In in chapter 1, verse 18, he uses that same Greek word for perish, referring to those who are perishing. It's referring to those who will will die and be separated from Christ. They They will be under judgment of God. They will go to hell. And Paul says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then everyone who has fallen asleep as a Christian has eternally perished in their sin. There's no hope. There's no forgiveness if Christ has not been raised. You ever stop to think, this is a bit of a side point, you have the top 10 list, or you can make the top 100 list, you know, Time Magazine, and I can't say I esteem their opinion on this very highly, but Time Magazine a few years ago did the top, I think, 100 most influential people in history. And you'll see this. Every year or so, they'll put out, you know, different people put these things out. So Time Magazine, I don't know, five or six years ago, 
put out a, a magazine, top 100 people, who, most influential people who've ever lived. And they had as number one, this is obviously secular people, number one, who was it? Jesus Christ, right? Number one, most influential person who ever lived. Okay, that's one list. Most people would agree Jesus is, is certainly the most influential person in human history. On the, there's another list, by the way. This is a very different list. You got people like Charles Manson on this other list, by the way. I'm just telling you where I'm going here. Now, on the other list, you have people who've claimed to be God. Charles Manson said things along those lines when he was involved in the murders in Hollywood a number of years ago. So, you, you've got a list of people who've claimed to be God. And you've got quite a list of people over here, right? You've got quite a list of people who've claimed to be divine in, in human history. There is only one person on both lists. The most influential person who ever lived is also the man who claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Well, just maybe, maybe the man we date our years around, maybe he actually was who he claimed to be. Maybe there actually is hope in Christ. The seventh thing that follows, if there is no resurrection, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. We are, of, we are of all people most to be pitied. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote. Didn't always agree with Lewis, but he had a way with words. Lewis said, Christianity, please hear this. I'm almost done. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is a fact that, if true, is of infinite importance. And if false is of no importance, the one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That's, an, that's exactly what Paul's saying. If Jesus has not been raised, living the Christian life is a pathetic joke. We are of all people most to be pitied. But if he has been raised, we should give everything we've got for the cause of Christ and for the glory of God. It's not one of those things that you can kind of take it or leave it. That's the one option you don't have with Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, it's like dominoes, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then what he said is true. If what he said is true, then all of Scripture is authoritative because he commended the Old Testament. He picked the authors of the New Testament. So if, if, if Jesus rose, he is true. The Bible is true. All of Christianity must follow as true from the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is still dead somewhere in the Middle East in this moment, his rotted bones somewhere outside the gates of Jerusalem at this very moment, then this is a massive waste of time. Christianity is something you should not spend another five minutes of your life thinking about. You should throw your Bible in the trash can on the way out the door, and you should find something better to do with your life. Those are the options that the Bible is telling you. This is clear as day. Either this is infinitely important, or it shouldn't matter to you at all. The one thing it cannot be is, I read the Bible occasionally. I go to church every once in a while. Now, once in a blue moon, I talk about Christ with someone. I'm not that. I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to get too crazy about it. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let me close here with the response. Look at verse 20. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know how first fruits work? The, the first fruits are like sort of think of as a guarantee for the rest, right? It, it includes the rest. Jesus' resurrection is proof positive that God will raise all those who die in Christ from the dead, triumphant, and we will get a body like His glorious body, and we will reign in a new creation with Him for all of eternity. Let me ask you to bow your heads. 
going to say a few things as you bow your heads, and I'm going to give you a moment in silence to pray, and then I will pray for us, and we'll sing again. As you bow your heads, just in a moment of silence or quiet here, I just want to mention a couple of things. First of all, have you received the gospel? Have you received Christ truly as your Lord, Savior, and treasure? Do you stand day in, day out? Do, we, do you stand with confidence and joy in the gospel? Number three, are you holding fast with passion to the word of the gospel? Or have I believed, have any of us believed in vain? Take a moment to pray silently. Heavenly Father, I would ask that right now as we pray and as we sing, Lord, if there are any, I have to assume there, there may be some, if there are any in this room who just, if we're being honest, feel like Jesus is just moderately important. God, I pray right now in this moment that you would open eyes that you would help the glory of Jesus to shine out of the gospel message. And maybe for the first time for some in this room that you would show that Jesus is true. He is really the resurrected King. He really is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. He offers full and free forgiveness for all that we've done wrong, all of our sins, all of our foibles, even our self-righteous sins can all be taken away by Golgotha and the empty cross and the empty tomb. And we can have eternal hope, washed pure, made spotless in Christ by His gracious and free work on behalf of sinners because He is the friend of sinners. God, please, even now, open eyes, show us the beauty of Jesus, and help us to worship in spirit and in truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from John 20, and this is especially for any who struggle with doubt. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the incredible gentleness and patience you showed to a doubting struggler like Thomas in this moment. You could have responded in anger at his doubt, but instead you condescended and humbly came back and you showed him the wounds and invited him to believe. Lord, some of us maybe struggle at times to truly believe these things with all of our heart. And God, if we struggle with doubt, I pray that you would come and meet with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would confirm our faith in the truthfulness of your word, and that we would know that your word, and especially John's gospel in particular, was written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. God, be with us this week. Watch over us. Draw us to yourself. Thank you for your goodness and your forgiveness. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.